the one and only Cliff Richard and the Shadow. Hi, this is David Ghosty Wills, and welcome to episode 10 of the We Say Yeah podcast, a monthly unofficial Cliff Richard and the Shadows fan podcast where we review and discuss every single EP and LP in chronological order. Before we get into this month's show, I just wanted to mention Paul Thompson, David Brearley, and Kitty Fowler, who sent me some great supportive emails, which I appreciate. And you can too at We Say Yeah Podcast at gmail.com. I also wanted to apologize to the folks who rated this podcast with five stars on Apple Podcasts. For some reason, I could not see your actual reviews on my iPhone. I have no idea why. I know that some listeners had contacted me and they told me that they had written good reviews, but since I didn't see them. I thought, well, you know, they may have had intentions of doing that and just didn't get around to it. But when I looked at Apple Podcasts on a desktop, well, then I saw your reviews. The Authentic Gaz writes, this is a great listen for fans of Cliff Richard and or The Shadows. Diving deep into the history of the early recordings. I'm loving listening to this every month. Keep them coming. OldFan59 writes, Fantastic show, giving great insights into Cliff's career. Deja78 writes, I've always believed that Cliff Richard and the Shadows have never truly got the recognition they deserve, and they have certainly been overlooked many times when the history of British rock and roll is being reviewed. How refreshing it is to have these excellent podcasts reviewing their outstanding music. Well done to everyone involved. I'm looking forward to the next episode. Thanks so much for those uh, five-star reviews and keep them coming, you know, because that uh, helps out the podcast and more people learn about it. The more five-star reviews we get. I appreciate that. I, for some reason, I couldn't see them on my phone, but on a desktop, I can. So from now on, I guess I'll use the desktop. That's that lesson. All right. On to this month's show. Our guest is Anthony Rattuno. Now, he hosts several different podcasts, chiefly among them, the Glass Onion on John Lennon podcast, where I was a guest on an epic three-part series about Elvis Presley. I should point out that even though John Lennon is the main thrust of the uh, Glass Onion podcast, Anthony uses these discussions to touch on a number of different topics, and in that case, it, it was Elvis. I was also a guest on his Film Gold podcast, where we had another epic conversation about Marlon Brando. This time round, Anthony joins me for an epic conversation about the first two Shadows EPs and two singles, including FBI. I began by asking him when he became aware of Cliff Richard, The Shadows, Cliff and the Shads together, all that good stuff. Well, I mean, I would say that I learned of Cliff and learned The Shadows very much independently and didn't know that they worked together for absolutely ages, except that... Um, when I was about 10 or 11, I I got the fantastic single of Living Doll by Cliff Richard and the Young Ones that mm. I know you've already talked about on this podcast. And uh, I have such great memories. I just watched it the other day. Obviously, with YouTube, we can indulge in endless nostalgia. So I love the I love the Young Ones part of it. And I love that, that Cliff was kind of playing along with the joke and not taking himself too seriously. But then halfway through the song, you suddenly cut to this fellow with glasses 
playing this fantastically smooth guitar solo, smooth in the best possible sense. And uh, I don't know, even just seeing a guy with glasses, and I, and I immediately thought, oh, he looks a bit like Buddy Holly, doesn't he? Uh, even though he didn't really at that point, but uh, just the glasses. Sure. So I remembered, so obviously then I learned that that was Hank Marvin. Um, and it's an interesting thing, when I was growing up, it seemed to be always that we had British equivalents of American stars. And because uh, in England we've got like a built-in inferiority complex, <laughs> we always considered them inferior versions. So, you know, you'd have uh, Elvis, we'd have Cliff, You'd have Marilyn Monroe. We'd have uh, Diana Dawes, if you've heard of her. Of course. You'd have Liz Taylor. We'd have Joan Collins. And I guess you had Buddy Holly. And we had Hank Marvin, who I wouldn't call inferior. But, yeah, it was interesting. And then um, at some point, I must have heard Apache. And that, that's, to be honest, until I started doing the research for this show, I didn't know too many Shadow songs. But it's been great fun learning them. And Apache was the one I knew. And then the only other one really was... Um, I knew this one that went uh, down, 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 but I didn't yeah. know it was. A, I didn't know it was the shadows, and of course now I know it's Man of Mystery. And uh, I just listened to your last two shows, and, and your guest was talking about Man of Mystery, and I was thinking, where the hell do I know that from? And it, before he even said it, I knew it, Edgar Wallace, mm. because I used to watch those. I don't know why I was watching Edgar Wallace at ten years old, but I was. I was watching these very, very British kind of vaguely spy stories of about an hour long. And Shadows just seems to fit perfectly with that. And then um, the last thing, I suppose, is obviously uh, you and I'm a huge Beatles fan, of course. And they will get a few mentions, but only actually in tribute to the influence of the Shadows. <laughs> I, of course, heard Cry for a Shadow, which is George Harrison's um, sort of takeoff of the Shadows. So I learned, learned them from then, really. Cliff, as I said, I, I probably knew from Summer Holiday and... Uh, I guess mistletoe and wine was a Christmas number one when I was about 13. But I knew them as two separate entities, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting mm. that you bring up this concept of British equivalents of American stars because I think the Beatles were Americophiles. You know, they were purists when it came to American music. And they're always talking about mm. the American sound and like the British sound isn't as good. And they didn't seem to have much time for homegrown rock and roll. In fact, I think in 1963, when they were sort of saying flippant and negative things about other British rock stars, I think there was a conscious effort there to separate themselves from what had gone before. Like, that's the old guard, and hey, we're the new guard. Obviously, you're the host of Glass Onion on John Lennon. Uh, later in life, when that competition didn't exist anymore, John would say some positive things about Cliff and the Shadows. So it wasn't unheard of for John Lennon to make contradictory statements about a whole variety of How topics. dare you accuse John Lennon of being contradictory. <laughs> uh, yes, yes, I have to agree with that. I mean, yeah, as you said, he, he did say in an interview that Move It was the first uh, British rock and roll record that had anything like the right sound or something like that. Right. I, th I think maybe it was uh, maybe like the Shadows dance steps and stuff like that, which are kind of charming to look at now. But I think that's what the I think it's what the Beatles are maybe trying to get away from. They're going for more of a punk thing in Hamburg. That's in Hamburg I'm talking about. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned this. So this is where I get a little defensive on behalf of the Shadows. I don't think that the Shadows' walk, their dance step, is any less cool than Paul and George rushing up to the microphone and shaking their heads in unison and going, woo -hoo. I think mm. they're kind of cut from the same showbiz cloth. Well, I think the yeah the the woo thing is is actually 
very, very feminine, really. I never thought it was a bad thing, but, you know, these t- tough lads from Liverpool kind of going, woo, you know, and I think Kenny Lynch, I'm sure you've heard of, he did the first ever Beatles cover. They were on the coach with him, uh, one of those uh, early tours they did. And they said, oh, Kenny, we're thinking of going up to the mic and going, woo. And Kenny Lynch said something extremely un-PC <laughs> about how they would be perceived. Right. So, yeah, it is a strange thing. I mean, my my indoctrination, if you like, I mean, one of my Beatles uh, indoctrinations was watching complete Beatles about 200 times, which I still love, despite the like cheap production values, but I still love it. And in that, they, they kind of make the point that there was this, there was this terrible lull between... Uh, the early rockers, and then the Beatles appearing, so sort of 59, 60, 61. So I think I've always been, as a younger man, I was always prejudiced against that. You know, we're all sort of conditioned in one sense, aren't we? But as I said, getting older, I've really broadened my tastes out. And uh, like I say, just uh, learning, I've just learned a few of these songs um, for the show, and uh, it's been fantastic. I love it. Great. Well, let's start with the first EP which is just called The Shadows, January 1961. You know what's interesting about this EP cover? I don't know if you've ever seen the cover of it, but this photo originally had Cliff in the center. It was a Cliff and the Shadows shot, and with the design, they cleverly obscured Cliff, so he's no longer in the photo. All right, track one, Mustang. This was written by Jerry Lorden, who also wrote Apache, and Thomas Mould. The Shadows were avowed fans of Western movies, and you can hear that in this song. It does conjure up images of a cowboy on his horse galloping through Monument Valley. <laughs> so what are your thoughts on Mustang? Um, yeah, I've just got a few notes from here. There's, a, there's very much a signature shadow sound, which is a, a very strange sound to me. Uh, in a good way, which is kind of military drums, flamenco rhythm guitar, and then, uh, yeah, like you said, there's this sort of Western theme. So I've just uh, written that down, and I I love, um, I must say, I prefer Bruce Welsh on acoustic guitar. I mean, he's great on electric guitar, but um, it's interesting that I think he was playing a Gibson acoustic. And again, Mm -hmm. I'm going to be mentioning the Beatles uh, quite a bit today, but as a tribute to show that the shadows were hugely influential, more than I'd realised on a lot of the quote-unquote British invasion bands. So, um, yeah, military drums, flamenco guitar, and the way the acoustic is played and recorded is just fantastic. It's so uh, crisp. And I think the thing that leaps out really is um, in shadows in general is, is the mix of acoustic and electric. So you've got this very, very nicely recorded acoustic and then this beautiful, clean, but also with tremolo effect um, um, guitar. This is very Beatles for Sale, obviously about four years before Beatles for Sale. And the other thing musically, uh, there's quite a lot of what they call passing chords, which is basically if you're changing from one chord to another, you might use a chord on the way of the chord change. And that's very skiffle. You know, often you might just use two fingers, for example. So um, were they a skiffle band, uh, The Shadows? H- Hank and Bruce were in The Vipers briefly. 
Oh, yeah. Produced by George so, Martin. Huh? Yes. Yes, yes. And their home base was Studio 2, Abbey Road. Oh, of course, yeah. I know, I know what, what I've um, been learning while I've been preparing for this is is how much had already happened before the Beatles. Because, uh, again, it's just it's my conditioning as a Beatles fan that, that, that basically nothing existed before them except maybe a bit of Elvis and a bit of Chuck Berry, you know. Right. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's a, it's a good song. Uh, I'm going to tell you what my favourites are as they come up. But this is pretty good, yeah. Not bad at all, yeah. So then we get to theme from Shane. Of course, this is the 1953 film uh, starring Alan Ladd. Stevens, creator of such masterpieces as Giant and his Academy Award-winning A Place in the Sun, enlarges the scope of the screen with a motion picture whose monumental background is matched by the stature of its moving human drama. Drama that began when a mysterious stranger rode in from out of nowhere to play a decisive role in the lives of these rugged pioneers. You call me Shane. This was written by Victor Young and Mac David, who's the brother of Hal David, of Burt Bacharach and Hal David fame. And this was recorded August 24th, 1960. I would say that this is the musical equivalent of a mosey. Well, as soon, as soon as it started up with the, this wonderful loping beat, I really love that, you know. Um, I immediately thought, God, that sounds like Living Doll. Just the beat. And I was also thinking of that song, you know, The Wanderer. Can you call me The Wanderer? It's that kind of slightly lazy, loping is probably a good word. I, lo- I love it. And they do an interesting thing. I could just, just show you this. So we're in the key of A. One thing I've learned from the Shadows is that nearly all their songs are in the key of A or A minor. Um, and I was actually surprised how much minor there was because minor is kind of known as, I don't know, sad chords. And Shadows records don't really sound sad to me. I don't know. Um but they do a they do a trick, so we're in the key of A. So it's got this wonderful kind of low peak. And then when they get to the bridge, they do a seventh. Which, mm. You know, we all will have heard in hundreds of songs. But it reminded me of um I since I recently discovered that in spite of all the danger, which was the Quarrymen sort of pre-Beatles song, is very like Elvis is trying to get to you. That kind of leapt to mind. So we're in the key of A and they do an A seventh. And then they go to the four chord, which would be the D. It's a very well-known uh, trick. But then the, the bridge, I love how suddenly you get the clip-clop of the horses. Right. Uh, which is fantastic. And I, I'm, I'm embarrassed to say I haven't seen the film Shane. In fact, Or if I have, I saw it when I was so young that I don't remember any of it. 
but uh, it's one of those ones I should get to. But yeah, I, I, I love that. And um, and then there's, then there's a kind of a military beat. Am I imagining that? Is, it, is there a lot of no, mili no, no. military drumming on Shadow Song? <laughs> there is, there is. Yeah, Tony mm. loved that. Yeah, it's funny juxtaposition of Western. I don't know how Western and military fits together, but they make it work somehow. Maybe they're you know? uh, they're saluting the cavalry. Who knows? Yeah, there you go. So yeah. we'll move on to cut through, turn the EP over, cut one, side two, shotgun. song written by joe allen there is no joe allen that's a pseudonym it was written by bruce hank and jet jet ah, harris right. they do this on occasion this has popped up a lot where sometimes they will credit a song to a friend mm. this is you know it's got obviously some very nice lead guitar from hank and mm. i like uh, the starts and stops and tony Meehan's fills i really enjoy um it's interesting because up to this point i haven't heard too much from the shadows that would fall into the category of R&B. So this was pretty interesting to me. Yeah, I've uh, I've written down drum histrionics. Yeah, it's some mm. crazy, crazy drumming on this. Yeah, great stuff. And then uh, it settles into a kind of a twist beat, which uh, for Beatles fans, that was the beat that Pete Best tended to favor. And, and some have uh, unkindly said that's the only beat he knew. But uh, <laughs> that's a, I, I would never say that, of course. Um, but yeah, the beginning, I love the beginning. It sort of goes... You've got the rhythm guitar stopping and starting, and then obviously the lead fills, and then it kind of settles into this nice. And then they do this uh, B. And the other thing that really leapt out here is that there's a guitar break. There's also a bass break. And I was always told, again in my indoctrination, that My Generation by The Who was the first song to ever feature a bass break. Um, and it's very similar, wouldn't you say? Like you hear the guitar chords. Yeah. And these, because they, I think from memory, there's two or three bass breaks and they're all slightly different, which is exactly what John Entwistle did. I'm glad you brought that up because I just finished reading the story of the shadows, which was mm. written by the shadows with DJ Mike Reed. And in that book, Pete Townsend writes a whole mm. chapter about how much the shadows mean to him. And you can see him talk about the shadows with Bruce mm. Welsh in the shadows at 60 TV special. So the, the who are definitely influenced by the shadows. Uh, I'll give Pete Townsend some credit. He's much more, um, amenable to giving his influences than other people yeah because uh, it's always a, it's always annoyed me with musicians when they won't name their influences as if the, what they're doing is so brilliantly creative that they're not you know because all creativity is taking what's gone before and trying to put your own stamp on it 
so yeah that that's an interesting part of it and um the the other song that sort of was this is reminiscent of is um at the end of pulp fiction there's a song called surf rider but that came after this so again that may have taken something from the shadows but the effect that hank puts on his guitar a lot of the time is a bit of tremolo and he puts a little bit of delay which kind of puts them in the surf genre as well so you know the plot's thickening a bit for me because we've got military drums flamenco rhythm guitar uh, a western influence with clip clopping and horses and then a bit of surf as well so it's a fascinating uh, sound yeah it is interesting and when shadows records were released here in the u.s they were released as surf records or they showed up mm. on surf compilations of course the ventures started at the same time as the shadows both groups unaware of each other at mm. first but toiling in the same musical vineyard. So then we get another movie theme to close out this EP, the theme from Giant. This was recorded October 7th, 1960. Giant, of course, the 1956 film starring Rock Hudson, Elizabeth Taylor, James Dean, uh, music written by Paul Francis Weber and Dimitri Tompkin. I guess you're about the best looking gal we've seen around here in a long time. I think. Pretty soon. I think I've seen down here. Why, thank you, Jeff. That's a very nice compliment. And I'm going to tell my husband I've met with your approval. Oh, well, no. I, I wouldn't do that. I mean, well, no, I... Whew. You know, it's a wonder that the shadows uh, music isn't used in films more because their sound would yeah. sort of lend itself to this kind of like I'm, I'm surprised they they weren't asked to score a spaghetti western or something that that would have made perfect sense but um as for the theme from giant you know this one's not a big favorite of mine but um you know it's pleasant Yeah, it's one of those ones, it's got all the shadows hallmarks, but it hasn't quite got the magic of some of the other ones. But it's perfectly acceptable, same as Mustang. So I'd say of this EP, the two in the middle are probably my favourite. Um, I've got here, yeah, tremolo, reverb. I mean, the guitar arguably sounds even better on this song, in fact. That may be what marks it out. And then uh, you, you get what seems to be quite characteristic of the shadows, which is a, a changing of the beat. And when the beat suddenly goes really fast at the end, that, that reminded me of She Said, She Said. <laughs> Again, five five years later. So I'm mentioning Beatles songs with the, the idea of giving the Shadows credit for being so influential, you know? Yeah, so that was the EP, which was a long time coming. People really wanted to hear the Shadows on their own. Then we get to a, a single released February 1961, the song FBI. This, of course, was a huge hit song. It's credited to their manager, Pete Gormley, but in fact, it's an original by Bruce, Hank, and Jed Harris.
it's one of those Shadows hits that shows up on 10 million different compilations I own, and this will be controversial. I'm a little tired of it in a way that I'm not tired of Apache. I can't really explain it. I mean, I think because I haven't heard it so much, I wonder if, uh, you know, you've, you might have just heard it too much, which, which can happen with the, the more famous songs. Uh, I mean, I, I, it just stood out to me because I'm, I'm, you know, a bit of a shadows rookie. So <laughs> it's just the one that stood out. And just to, as I've already said that they straddled about four genres. Now, this is interesting. We've got, which is a kind of an offbeat, almost scar. Right. Uh, you know, so we're in A minor again. They, they love their A minors. And they do a thing which is, uh, you, I'm sure you've heard of 12 bar blues. Mm -hmm. They do a sort of variation of 12 bar blues, but in a minor key. So you've got the D minor. Then you go to the E, and then they hang on the E longer than you would expect. Normally, you'd expect them to go D minor, E7, A minor, but it's D minor, E7, and then they hang on it. So, yeah, military beat, flamenco rhythm, scar, it's all happening. And then um, the other thing I love about it is that um, he plays a lot on the low notes. I've noticed Hank does this a lot. He he's kind of lulls you into a false sense of security by playing these nice lines on the low notes. And then suddenly you'll get this wailing guitar on the high notes mm. and you'll start bending the strings. And I can't demonstrate it, definitely not with an acoustic guitar because I'm not anything like as good as Hank Marvin. But um, that's another thing that I noticed. So, yeah, because I haven't heard this song too much. This one did quite majorly stand out. And I can see why it's a single, you know. Singles are not always the best songs when you become a big fan of a group, wouldn't you say? But yeah, if you don't know them that well, they're the ones that do tend to leap out. So we flip that record over and we have an instrumental called Midnight recorded on October 26th, 1960. So the Shadows would perform a cover of Santo and Johnny's Sleepwalk, but they started to get bored of playing it live. So they wrote a sound-alike instrumental called Midnight, and it was the first of several songs that kind of sounded like Sleepwalk. In essence, they created a genre of songs <laughs> that sound a bit like Sleepwalk. Yeah, it's, um, it's it's hard for us now in 2022 to, to know what it was like to buy a record and to have an A-side and a B-side and not have access to loads of music. So I can imagine, you know, uh, surely 99% of people who bought records would put the A-side on first because it's the one they know. But this works as a lovely compliment because it's just a nice, it's a, a ballad. Um, it's a lovely, like, whammy bar. That's another thing that obviously Hank's known for, the tremolo bar, you know, to get those bends. Um, and I'm, I'm glad you said that about Sleepwalk, because when we get to Sleepwalk, I was going to say it's it's like a slightly slower version right. of Midnight. So, okay. so it's right. the other way around, yeah. right? So, um, 
I think B-sides became sometimes a bit quirky, maybe. Yeah. You put your quirky song on a B-side, but I feel like, by design or not, this works really well with FBI because it's just very low-key. So next up, we have this EP, which we can talk about very briefly because this is not uh, something that really is considered part of the official catalog, but it was released, I mean, it was legitimately released, March 1961, The Shadows at the Coliseum, Johannesburg. These recordings were done at a Cliff and the Shadows concert and released specifically for the South African market. It's four tracks, Shazam, which is a Dwayne Eddy cover. Guitar Boogie. Sleepwalk. And rounding out this EP, FBI, and I prefer this live version much more than the single version. Well, do you know what it is? What it might be is that, yeah, it seems very faithful to the recording, but there's a few whoops yeah. in all the right places. And did you find maybe, um, and again, people have said this about um, Beatles at Shea Stadium, that the audience almost become part of the music. Yes. That kind of din becomes almost like a wall of noise. And I think in this case, it sounds pretty similar to the recording, but that really enhances it. Because it's almost like they're feeding off each other, you know? Right. The audience and the performer, which is what should be happening. But um, I have a question. At the beginning of this EP, you hear lots of uh, very screaming fans. Did they have quite rabid fans in the shadows? Yeah. Yeah, they did. And especially with Cliff, because he would be the focal point of those screams. And there's a concert from Holland. I want to say it's 1965. It's on YouTube. You can watch it, and it's just... Bedlam. It's kids screaming and rushing the stage and jumping on the stage and hanging on to the shadows. And and just as an aside, sometimes the security, these people don't even seem to be security. They just seem to be adults, almost like deacons of a church that have been brought to a concert to keep children in line. And some of them are so rough with these yeah. kids. I, I mean, to the point where it's abusive. They're like 
this in this particular show in Holland, this guy, I don't know who he is, uh, is throwing this woman back into her chair and and pressing her shoulders and and at one point he's like standing on stage he jumps on stage with the band and he's looking at the audience sternly and uh, I, I don't know who these people are but I think about George Harrison's quote mm. that Beatlemania was like an excuse for the cops to get out of line you know for them to mm. get caught up in this. Uh, sort of frenzy, and I, I see some of that happening <laughs> with uh, a Shadows gig, too. Well, I suppose everyone was a bit more buttoned up in those days, although perhaps not as much as we think. So they all had a bit of yeah. pent-up energy. But uh, I've, I've just sort of got brief comments on each song. Sure. Um, yeah, Shazam's not bad. Um, there's a little bit of, uh, I can hear a little bit of Eddie Cochran in the guitar as well, which um, hmm. obviously Eddie Cochran's considered rock and roll, but with a bit of rockabilly. Sure. Another bass break as well. And then these uh, these incredible, these fast breaks. I'm, I'm suddenly thinking, blimey, this is Keith Moon before <laughs> Keith Moon, isn't it? Yeah. Th- this kind of ability to keep the beat going, but basically play drums as a lead instrument, as I think Pete Townsend said that Moon did. Right. Um, guitar boogie is quite, quite rudimentary, just in the sense that it's a 12-bar blues. But uh, I think those drums... Uh, really mark it out and then Sleepwalk apparently the original of Sleepwalk was an inspiration for Albatross by Fleetwood Mac and you can definitely hear that yeah yeah and of course I I think the Shadows covered Albatross I have a memory of listening to the radio and Bruce Welsh uh, played their version but yeah yeah it's good Um, I think generally in a concert if it's going well and everyone's buzzing generally you'll play the songs quite faithfully but it'll all be a bit faster with a bit more nervous energy attached to it that's what I think that's the way it should go in a good concert. And, and FBI's got a bit of that. You know, it's just, I don't know if it's even faster or maybe it's an illusion, but it seems faster. It seems a tiny bit more breathless. It's funny you mentioned Keith Moon because, again, going back to Pete Townsend, he says in the book that when he would listen to Tony Meehan play, he was convinced that what he was doing was not humanly possible. <laughs> Sadly, Tony Meehan was not long. For this group, you know, he was very, very young and he found it difficult to get to the gigs on time, going so far as to miss flights and miss travel because he couldn't wake up in the morning on time uh, and, and it became a problem maybe he falls in that bracket of a kind of uh, maybe a genius or just very good but with the good parts you get the other bit of being undisciplined. I mean, I'm sure compared to Keith Moon, he was probably quite disciplined. But right. Yeah, <laughs> of course. And, you know, there's another Beatle connection here because after Tony Meehan mm. leaves The Shadows, uh, not too long after that, Jet Harris leaves, they team up and they have hits as a duo. Then Tony starts working for Decca Records and allegedly, ah. according to Mark Lewison's tune-in book, Tony Meehan was there when The Beatles auditioned for Decca Records, and he allegedly was part of the decision to turn them down, and as a result, George Harrison held a grudge against Tony Meehan for the rest of his life. Now, I don't know if that's actually true. Tony Meehan later denied that he had any part in that decision or that he was even there on that fateful New Year's Day. I mean, maybe he was there and Tony Meehan was just grumpy because he had to get up early on New Year's Day. Yeah. I always thought that was a biz- bizarre day for, right. a, for an audition. <laughs> Why New Year's Day? Why not just make it Christmas Day? <laughs> <laughs> we'll uh, wrap it up here with the last single that we'll talk about, released in April 1961. 
This time it's another movie, The Frightened City. Uh, this was written by their producer, Nori Paramore. Of course, Nori Paramore wrote the score for the film, which is a movie starring Sean Connery and Herbert Lom. Mm-hmm. And what did you think of The Frightened City? I really love this. This is a, a huge favourite. Um, partly because I actually love that film as well. Uh, yeah, as you said, Herbert Lom. It's a, a pre-Bond Sean Connery. I think the year before Doctor No. And uh, I was saying earlier with the Edgar Wallace, I, I grew up with these um, sort of, I don't know, British neo-noir kind of B-movies, but not in a bad way. Just minor as in not famous. One thing, we've got to keep out of the news. No more of this strong arm stuff, except as a last resort. Mm, that's going to be a bit tricky. Some of these boys are lively with the cosh. They can be taught. Who controls them on the job? Tanky Thomas. No good. We need someone with more finesse, tough but intelligent. It's a tall order in this game. Recruit from outside then. Bend the straight man a little if necessary. I got the very merchant. Tough? Very. But not violent, huh? Oh, not violent at all. Except when he has to be. This song fits perfectly with the film for a start, but it, it's great in its own right. And um, again, it's got all the Shadows trademarks. It's in A minor once again. Uh, it's got uh, three or four of their favourite chords. It's got a bass break. It's got great drum frills and it's got a key change. It's the whole Shadows packet. Yeah. Big favourite. Yeah. So then we flip the record over. We're, we're at the last song here that we're discussing today. This is from September 5th, 1960, a song called Back Home. Written by The Shadows and Jim Goff. I don't know who Jim Goff is. I'm sure some Shadows aficionado will tell me. I'm a sucker for Shadows tracks that call to mind lazy, tropical <laughs> paradises. Um, there's a strangely Hawaiian feeling to this. And my life is such crap that w- when I hear something like this that puts me in that mindset, I'm, I just get very happy. Yeah, I've written down another low-key B-side, but yeah, just just perfect as a B-side to Frightened City, really. Um, a slight criticism, the rhythm guitar sounds a bit muddy, and I don't know why. Hmm. Um, there's another little bass break, and then um, I like the beat, sort of reminiscent of uh, Mr. Moonlight, um, which would have been before them and after them as well. So, Anthony, before you go, tell us a little bit about your podcasts plural because you have a few of them yes well glass onion on hank marvin 
Um, it's, <laughs> it's, it's just been renamed. Uh, Glass Onion on John Lennon is a deep dive into John Lennon and uh, David Ghosty Wills put it perfectly. Uh, it's it's using John Lennon as a jumping off point to talk about all kinds of other things such as, I don't know, drugs, society, philosophy, psychology. Um, it's available everywhere. I think podcasts are all available everywhere pretty much. Um, film Gold is obviously about films kind of veering towards slightly older. There's quite a bit of 70s in there. We're recording Rear Window with Matt from Pop Goes the 60s this week. Um, and then Life and Life Only. Again, it's it's the John Lennon one without John Lennon. <laughs> but uh, no, psychology, alternative media, it's very eclectic. It's a podcast about life, so I get to exercise a bit of license there to do whatever I want. And um, But I kind of, I, they all do seem to blend into each other in some strange way, you know, and um, so I consider them linked to each other, but they're all available uh, everywhere. Again, my thanks to Anthony Rattuno for appearing on this month's podcast. Next month, a sequel of sorts to episode four of this podcast when we take a look at the 1961 LP, Listen to Cliff. In the meantime, send me an email. It's we say yeah podcast at gmail.com and join us over on Facebook. Just look for We Say Yeah. You'll see our page. Like it, follow it, and uh, we have a lot of fun on their in-between episodes. So come and join us. Until next month, thanks so much for listening. So, yeah, I just, uh, well, I thought I could just um, sort of hum the, the lead and then just to show you this beat, really. So Apache's like... minor and then they go and move the whole thing up to D minor and then and then they just do one other thing which is um, which is F G C A minor which is the four chords of what is called the doo-wop sequence that you'd find in Stand By Me, Please Mr. Postman. But again, they do a, a thing which we always credit the Beatles for doing, which is switching the chords around. So you've got, normally it would be C, A minor, F, G. Now you've got F, G, C, A minor. So you're kind of in the key of C there. So that's an interesting thing. But I like this flamenco. And then uh, Man of Mystery is pretty similar rhythm guitar-wise. Um, hang on a sec. Dun, dun, dun. I was trying to remember it, yeah. And they do this thing, which again is um, just for the guitarist. So the A minor would be the one chord. They do this thing when they go to the five chord of E, because it kind of helps you get back home to A minor. So that's a little trick. Um, can hear a bit of Buddy Holly in there, not massively, but I think it's more the way the songs are pre presented and the acoustic guitar. And obviously, Buddy and Hank are both very synonymous with the Fender Strat before Hendrix rewrote all the rules of how to play a Fender Strat. 
But um, yeah, just just to say in general, thanks for giving me the opportunity to listen to these songs and study them and play the chords because it's it's been really interesting. I can't. They seem to straddle five or six genres, and it's and uh, but they fit very well equally with westerns and with those sort of British neo-noir spy films, you know, because their songs can sound their songs can sound vaguely sinister if they're over a scene of someone doing something dodgy, like a, you know, a spy doing something secretive. So, <laughs> but I didn't realize as well their influence, to be honest.